Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, everybody, we, this is yet another case where I'm not going to pretend like, hey, Steve, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Because we are just <laughs> recording the second half of January 1964. When we do these two-part episodes, we generally record them all in one night. So we have just finished recording the first half of January 1964, and now we're going to go ahead and do the second half. So why don't we hop right into it, Steve? What book are we going to do first? Tales of Suspense, I believe. Yes. Tales of Suspense number 49, guest starring the angel. So let me just say, so, I'll, yeah. I'll go ahead and let you go through this issue, but let me just say, I'm going to make a bold claim here. This is, to my mind, one of the all-time worst Marvel comics, despite the oh, fact yeah. it is Stan and Steve, despite the fact that we have the great Steve Dicko penciling it and presumably plotting it or co-plotting it. This is, when I think of bad 60s comics, when I think of insultingly bad 60s comics, this is always one I think of, just because oh, yeah. the very notion of a hero is stands too near to a nuclear explosion and the nuclear explosion turns him temporarily evil is just the lamest story starter ever. Yeah. And especially where it's like, you know, oh man, that's so crazy. Who would ever thought of that? But no, it's ended up treating it as being like, oh yeah, I should have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I had to jump forward a little bit. Um, and then also, yeah, the, the art, the art combination of Ditko and uh, who's inking him here? Ayers. Um, is no, not Reinman. no Reinman actually, even though I usually like Reinman, but once again, that just does not work in here. And actually, when you were talking about insultingly bad uh comics, I had misremembered, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, I had misremembered that uh Iron Man used his built in slide rule in his gauntlet in this issue. Uh, but I think I remembered that just because that was an insultingly bad and poorly drawn panel. And so I was thinking, oh, well, that's clearly this issue. <laughs> but no, no, it wasn't. It's it's coming up in an upcoming issue, which I think might be heck inked by airs or something like that. And that's where the, uh, the disconnect comes there. All right. So it starts out with the angel flying back to school, presumably from New York City. Uh, and he's like, oh, I'll take this shortcut over this dark factory down below. And then Iron Man is waving him off like, no, 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 you fool. There's going to be an explosion. And Angel's like, huh, why is he waving at me? And then the nuclear explosion goes off. And, you know, so it seems a little odd to me that in uh, actually within the bounds of New York City, they'd be sending off some sort of nuclear explosion as part of an experiment. But, you know, what do I know? I'm not a scientist. This nuclear reaction of some sort ends up setting off something in Warren Worthington's brain that turns him evil. He says, I feel different, as though I'm a new person, a smarter, craftier, slyer person. And yes, I admit it, a far more evil person. Uh, so then uh, he ends up in a sort of a chase with Iron Man. Iron Man ends up uh, running out of power, stalling out his jets, and he falls down into a uh, one of the buildings on his property. Meanwhile, we switch to Westchester, where the X-Men are all being confronted by Angel, who's basically saying, hey, guess what? I'm evil now, and I'm going to go find the evil mutants because they're awesome and they're like me. Uh, and <laughs> so the other X-Men 
try to stop him and are not able to. So meanwhile, back at Tony Stark's lab, so he has fixed his chest device, which was damaged in the fight with Angel earlier. And uh, then he takes off his armor and we get to see once again how there's a magnetic release of the sleeves of these things. So we don't see the whole thing within dressing and seeing his bare thighs. But, you know, we'll, we'll see oh, we that still get time. to see some bare thighs on the bottom of page nine. We still get to see some bare thighs. There's going to okay, be we're, continual we're bare yet. thighs. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, you know, if you're if you're into Tony Stark's thighs, then you know you're you're in luck from now on. So, meanwhile, we go back to the Angel continuing to bug out of there, and Professor X is trying to send him mental commands. And uh, Professor X starts thinking maybe this whole idea was a failure. You know, if Angel could turn against us and turn evil, maybe I shouldn't be training any of you people. You know, maybe maybe this is just a bad mission that I've got. The X Men are worried about this, and they meanwhile go ahead and call the Avengers to see, hey, can you do anything uh, to stop the Angel? The only Avenger who is available, because we see everybody else doing other stuff. So the only one who gets the distress call is Tony Stark. Uh, Now, (laughs) when he gets the radio call on page nine, uh, he starts taking off his suit, and there's this antenna on his shoulder that sticks up to, like, the level of his eyes. And it's like, was that under your suit? Like, was... What's what exactly is going on with that? I'm not entirely sure. So yes, as as you pointed out, we see his bare thighs again on page nine. So uh, ladies or gentlemen, if you wish. Um, so uh, then the angel is flying back through New York City and he's thinking, I need to get the attention of the evil mutants. They can let me join them. So I'm just going to go ahead and start creating mayhem in... New York City. Uh, by the way, that panel, uh, the t- first panel on page 10, once again, just terrible. <laughs> just terrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so then he goes and Steve Ditko, one of the all-time great fencers, Paul Reinman, a truly great inker. Put them together. Terrible. Only Ditko can ink yeah. Ditko. Um, so uh, Angel goes and steals some dynamite from a construction factory, starts setting the dynamite off in random locations that won't hurt anybody. But, you know, are supposed to get a lot of attention. And he's like, what, where are these evil mutants? Why can't I get them? Uh, so the cops are thinking about whether they have to shoot down the angel with their rifles. Uh, and Iron Man comes up and says, hold it, officers. Don't shoot. No time to explain now. But the angel isn't really responsible for what he's doing. Give me a chance to stop him before you attack, chief. And the chief is like, well, I don't know what the regulations would say about this. But seeing it's you. All right, you have 10 minutes. So uh, anyway, Iron Man goes up and essentially he has to put himself in a life threatening position where he, Iron Man, is about to die uh, in order to uh, rescue the angel's good nature from his brain to trigger it so that he will then be like, oh, no, I need to save him. Uh, which seems like an, an odd choice to make, a big risk that doesn't seem to make any real sense that it would work, but it does, and the angel stops him from falling. And then we have this terrible panel on uh, the bottom of page 17. He wasn't really to blame for his actions, Chief. He was affected by some atomic rays at a test conducted by Anthony Stark at his weapons plant. The rays affected his brain for a time. Until now. And then uh, Angel says, so that's the answer. I should have guessed. It's like, but you were evil. So why would you be thinking, why am I evil? This is bad, since you liked it. And 
also why i should have guessed no no you shouldn't have that makes no sense <laughs> anybody who knows anything about atomic radiation knows that atomic radiation will turn you temporarily evil yes uh and once again i will notice i will note that uh i believe that the um spiky pointed helmet on um yes on Iron Man i was going to point missed. that out mm-hmm. yeah it was I just was... a miscue between ditko and uh kirby as far as i can tell Yes, you are yeah. totally right that it was they were just pointing up a little bit because the mask was not totally situated in place in the last issue. And then Kirby misunderstood that and shows them being permanently spiky sitting up in both Avengers two and three. And it is clear from looking at the actual Dicko issues that, no, they are not supposed to be spiky. Yep. Yep. Uh, OK, so um, after the the whole like we should have guessed thing. Uh, Angel returns to the X-Men and it becomes clear what happened. And Professor X is saying, so I did not fail. My X-Men training program is successful. Even under the influence of atomic radiation, Angel could not permit a fellow mortal to die. Uh, So then Iron Man, who's out visiting them, shakes their hands and, you know, they say goodbye and uh, and Professor X actually says, you risked your life for one of my X-Men. No matter who you really are, I shall repay you for that someday. I promise you that. Actually, that ends up paying off, if I remember right, later in this month. Uh, we're going to get to an issue where <laughs> where Iron yep. Man just barges in. It's like, hey, yeah, Professor nice, X said. Uh, nice Marvel continuity. You've got to uh, set it up here and pay it off to it in this very podcast. Um, yes. Yes. So a truly not, terrible not issue. Yeah, not good. <laughs> not good. Um, <laughs> just the Silver Age at its worst in terms of just, oh, I'm flying over a nuclear explosion. It's turned me temporarily evil. I'll be evil for a while and then I'll switch to being good. That is just Silver Age storytelling at its laziest. Um, not good art. Uh, great pencil or great anchor. Not great when put together. Um, it is nice to see the rest of the Marvel Universe acknowledge the existence of the X-Men for the first time. Um, to show that, you know, the X-Men is not just its own bizarre little subset of the Marvel Universe, that it actually is going to interact. And then, like I said, that'll pay off again later this very month. But a truly terrible issue. Yeah, yeah, not not good. It really, when you were talking about it being very Silver Age, it really does feel like an issue of contemporaneous, contemporaneous stories of su- from Superman, but without the very professional art. <laughs> yes without the without like the wayne boring art <laughs> it's yeah. just like uh that that kind of dumb story like oh i must eat this entire thing or else jimmy olsen will die kind of story <laughs> but uh yes all right so um but then we do have this nice thing at the end tales of the watcher now between this and the wasp tells a tale which we are going to talk about shortly i find myself wondering if as the Marvel universe was starting to take over just about everything that Marvel was doing, not everything, I guess they were probably still doing some Westerns and some girl books and stuff, stuff like that, but their science fiction comics were all being replaced by superheroes. I'm kind of wondering whether some of these were like inventory stories they had for their science fiction books that then they like, you know, redid the intro page and the final page for to go ahead and work into these things. Um, yeah, I think I that know. is clearly the case with both. Yeah, so this is very strange. I've always thought it would make a great trivia question to say before Captain America took over the back half of Tales of Suspense, who did Iron Man share the book with for the previous five issues or so? And who was 
who what major Stan Lee Jack Kirby character was um was starring in the back half of the book for the previous five issues or so before Captain America took over. And I always thought that would be one hell of a trivia question with the answer being <laughs> the Watcher. We have tales of the Watcher and we very much have the Watcher as he would be used going forward as someone who is just watching the whole universe and hosting a sort of anthology style tales. This story says it has story plot by Stanley, script and art by Larry Lieber um, and inking by George Bell. And so this is just a very standard Larry Lieber written and penciled science fiction story, but it just happens to be hosted by the watcher as a way to sort of go like, well, we'd like to keep doing the science fiction stories, but we know you guys love the Marvel universe and let's sort of try to incorporate these things into the Marvel universe sort of uh, by having the watcher host this. And then even more bizarrely having the wasp host one in the back of tales to astonish this month. It's, Ultimately, they'll give up on this very quickly. They'll just get rid of the science fiction stories entirely. They'll pretty much get rid of Larry Lieber entirely. But uh, for now, it's sort of an interesting sort of halfway point, And it's sort of a road not taken for Marvel Comics. Yeah, well, and I think Larry Lieber will continue working on some of their Western books, which do actually continue on for a while. Uh, but I think that, yeah, that, that, that's sort of where he is relegated to uh, over time. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I wonder whether this was just an inventory story that they already had laying around that they modified, or if it was just, as you said, you know, oh, we still want to keep doing a few of these things here. And there. Anyway, um, generally, this is a, <laughs> this is both a dumb formulaic story and a very sort of profound story in terms of the direction, the sort of anti-militarist direction that uh, that Stan Lee is heading in here, um, which I think we determined earlier seemed to have been sparked by the Cuban Missile Crisis, as far as we could tell in terms of the timeline of when things were done here, that uh, that coincided with the first appearance of the Watcher, and there was some talk there, of, and with the Red Ghost stuff on the moon, uh, about, you know, mankind possibly leading to their own destruction. Uh, and that this is sort of building on that a little bit here. Yeah, so I, I should see- say I didn't, I should say I didn't actually read the story. It's just a, you know, Larry Lieber sci-fi backup story written in pencil. I don't read those, um, but I just thought it was funny. They had the watcher hosted, but I didn't actually read the story. Well, it, it actually does. So let, let me, so basically they're called the, <laughs> okay. sneak, do we have the time sneakers. For, do we have time for this? Well, okay. Let me just jump to the end. Let me just jump okay. to the end. So it's generally a pretty lame story. Uh, these aliens called the Sneepers are watching humanity through the years and thinking, ah, oh, they're just cavemen. They're not worth conquering. And then they see that we're going through all this technological and cultural advancement. And then they realize that we are actually starting to overcome their technology uh, when we get the atom, when you get the power of the atom. So then the, the Sneepers are then continuing to watch us. And they're like, well, now they're more powerful than us. We need to be worried about them. We should have conquered them earlier. And then the, uh, the newspaper headlines say, fighting rages in Vietnam. Communists explode, new super bomb. Cuba crisis grows worse. And the Sneepers are all like, oh, you know what? This problem is going to take care of itself. Yeah, we're worried about these humans and their technology. But it looks like they're about to blow themselves up with that technology. So then we won't need to worry about it. Uh, and the, you know, the watcher comes in and says, thus the sneepers wait for your self-destruction, but you must not allow it to happen. You must not permit the sneepers to gain control of the galaxy by default. Somehow, some way, you must prove them wrong. 
you must heed my warning, for you are free to act, but I may only observe and hope, for I am the watcher. So, you know, this is really a pretty, you know, yeah. uh, uh, a pretty blunt moralistic story here about the dangers of, you know, where we were in the Cold War at the time. Uh, and yeah. so uh, and this is more the direction that Marvel Comics will be heading going forward. It is. Okay. So um, there we go. That's it. Well, that brings us to another comic that has a Marvel character hosting a science fiction story in the back. But before we get to yes. that, let's go ahead and do... Tales to Astonish, don't miss Giant Man's showdown with the human top. So we pick up second half of the story from last issue. We begin with the same thing going on as happened at the end of last issue. Once again, Giant Man is created a little fake spinny top type person for him to practice fighting the human top on. And once again, is doing a terrible job and can't get the hang of it and realizes what he's going to do. We then get to the second time this month where we have a villain who is just randomly throwing dynamite, harmlessly throwing dynamite off a pier, um, just as Angel did. This time it is the human top trying to cause a distraction so he can do a crime on the other side of town. Giant Man figures it out. Oh, I should go ahead and say that this issue is... Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Dick Ayers. I love Ayers inking on Kirby, and I'm so happy to have them back reunited on this issue. Reunited and it feels so good. I'm sorry. Yes, we're now going to have to pay for that song clip. Um, so then, No, I kept it under seven seconds. Okay. So then uh, Giant Man tries to go out and deal with it, but then his fan club shows up. <laughs> then he That will be their- a recurring thing going forward. So he has to get them out of there. He goes across town. He tries to stop the human top. Human top, he just can't get a hold of the guy. The guy's too slippery. He gets away. They should then have a panel of the wasp hitting the human torch with water from a fire hydrant. But instead, it has the wasp telling a cop to do it because I guess she lacks the arm strength to open a fire hydrant is the idea here. It's uh, pretty lame. So then he gets away. Now we get to, for the first time in a long time, we have... The human top talking about like, oh, I'm going to steal some civil defense plans and I'm going to sell them to the commies. Uh, we haven't had mention of the commies for a long time in Marvel Comics. But uh, and sure enough, you see a red agent with his classic goatee and mustache um, mm-hmm. who is going to buy the plans. But meanwhile, Giant Man and the cops come up with Operation Clampdown. And we don't know what that is. But then we see them put it into effect. They he <laughs> confronts. He, he puts on a trench coat and hat so the human top won't recognize him and then throws it off and reveals he's giant man and fights the human top. And the human top's like, oh, I can get away from you. I'm very slippery. But then he finds that he is on a street where every single street has been blocked off by a fence and he's trapped. And uh, giant man can finally grab him. Well, giant man then puts glue on his hands. Correct. <laughs> Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. Uh, giant man. Well, puts, well, we don't see that he does this. It's just after he catches the top, they're like, how were you able to do that? He's like, oh, I put some super sticky stuff on my hands. The end. Yes. He had <laughs> glue on his hands, allowing him to, to keep the top. Um, and then Wasp is like, but I don't understand. He slipped out of your grasp so easily before. How come he couldn't do it now? He says, because this time, my inquisitive little imp, I took the precaution of applying a strong coating of glue to my gloves. You'll notice you can't get away now either. She says, mm, but I'm not struggling. I like it this way. And that <laughs> is the end of our two-parter. Um, great to have Kirby giving it as all this issue. Kirby having a lot of fun. Beautiful air sinking. I think that this is 
uh, a fun issue. Um, it's sort of a shame to start doing two-parters because it was fun having done in one issues. But if it gives us another issue of beautiful art and perfectly fine story, then I'm okay with it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still not a fan of the human top, but my favorite panel in this issue is on page 11 at the, the very first panel up there where uh, they're, you know, sting operation they're doing against the communists uh is going on and apparently they are literally right next door to the communist safe house or whatever and then so uh giant man leans out the window of the room that they're in and says now that our commie friends have served their purpose we won't need them anymore and so and he reaches around into the next window and grabs them <laughs> it's i i just find that utterly hilarious so then you were going to go on and talk about the the wasp tells a tale. Yes. So then in the back, even more bizarrely than having. Well, first of all, there is a way more, way, way more bizarrely, way more bizarrely than having the watcher tell a science fiction tale. Well, first, we have just the normal Stanley Larry Lieber science fiction story in the back that goes on for five pages. But then after that, we get another five pages called The Wonderful Wasp Tales a Tale, and we are in a veterans hospital. Various veterans convalescing in a veterans hospital, and then the wasp has shown up. Once again, this is Story Pot Stanley, script and art, Larry Lieber, inking George Bell, just as with The Tales of the Watcher, and then she tells a tale called Somewhere Waits a Wobo. Once again, I did not read it. It is uh, <laughs> looks like a standard Larry Lieber science fiction tale. And yeah, this, this one, uh, unlike the previous one, this one does not have any real uh, redeeming qualities. She finishes telling the story and they're like, how about telling it again? We may or have missed some important parts. And she says, sorry, fellas, just like the Wobo, it's time for me to change now. Like this, as soon as I get one of my reducing capsules, she's gone. It happens every time. Oh, well, maybe she'll come back sometime. How'd you like her story, Joe? What story? With a doll like that in front of you, who can listen? And it says, we can, that's who, and we'll listen again next issue when the wasp tells another tale. The end. So bizarre. So These bizarre. Make no <laughs> sense whatsoever. It's like we have never gotten the, we've never gotten any impression that she is either a fan of or a writer of genre pulp fiction, which is basically what this is. It's like, hmm, what am I sending into amazing, you know, amazing stories to hopefully get published next month? it just doesn't make any character sense whatsoever now we when we talked to jeremy whitley about his wasp comic we should have said can you have a throwback to the wasp tells a tale could you (laughs) could could you have jan go like well you know when jan was mentoring the new wasp in those comics she could have gone like well i remember a time in my past where i used to go to veterans hospitals and tell science fiction stories that i had made up to the veterans there it would have been great to finally have a throwback to that in a comic. <laughs> but, uh, and these poor yeah. veterans are apparently the only people in the history of Marvel Comics who the Wasp is not hot for. So she... <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they're even soldiers. You know? I mean, yes. come on. You know? she She's specifically talked about how hot she is for soldiers, but now they're wounded. So... Dick. yeah so <laughs> she's no longer no longer has the hots for them she had the hots she had the hots for don blake she had the hots, yeah. she had the hots for for don blake who does walk around with a cane but these guys are too convalescent for her but uh anyway a truly bizarre crossover bit where marvel they're trying to find a way to hang on to their larry lieber science fiction stories in the back and 
incorporate them into the Marvel universe at the same time. It was bizarre when the Watcher did it. It was even more bizarre when the Wasp did it. I know they're both going to stick around for a while, I believe. So this is not the last we will see of them. Oh, no. Yeah, we will definitely see both of those for a while now. Um, and yeah, no, the Watcher one, I totally get that. That makes that makes sense. Whether or not you'll like the science fiction stories that he's telling, it completely tracks with what we know about things. The Wasp tells a tale. Eh. <laughs> Once again, just doesn't make any sense. Okay, so we're now going to move on to X-Men number three, where we introduce the Blob, who will be a longtime villain. So X-Men number three is a major turning point in this podcast. What is true of X-Men number three that has not been true of any other issue we have done so far? Oh, I don't know. What are you getting at? I own it. This is the first. Oh, really? This is the first Marvel comic we have gotten to where I could have read my own copy instead of reading my scans or the Marvel Unlimited copy. How do you pick one of these up? I There was a woman in our church who said, hey, I've got some old comic books sitting around. Do you kids want them? And we divided them up between us. And one of them was X-Men number was three. The there were some old school comics Was this the same place you got the first appearance of uh, Black Panther? Yes. Fantastic Four 52 was also one of them. And I ended up with both oh. those. And uh, and oh. so, yes, so I have, it's a truly terrible copy, but uh, I've got X-Men number three <laughs> downstairs as we speak. I did eventually go ahead wow. and sell the first appearance of the Black Panther um, because I figured the time was right. But, uh, and this one, I believe, is also signed by Stan Lee, my copy of X-Men number three downstairs. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, yeah, no, I, I had no idea. I did not remember that at all. So um, anyway, there are a couple of uh, big things that happen in this issue. One is that the Blob is introduced, who will be a long-running villain uh, into, you know, at least the 80s. I don't know if he's continued uh, on in the present day, but I imagine he has. Um, uh, we also have one of the most infamous panels about uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Professor X uh, being inappropriate uh, concerning Gene. Uh, and uh, another one thing that I think is um, an important development is uh, the Beast's characterization really kind of crystallizes for what it's going to be uh, essentially until he turns into a blue fuzzy guy. Uh, yes. So basically he is he is this big, big hulking kind of bruiser looking tough guy, but he then has this very erudite vocabulary and very sort of... Uh, uh, intellectual bearing. Uh, and we're going to be seeing a fair amount of that. So we start off with uh, more training in the danger room and, you know, more of essentially, uh, you know, Professor X having them all attack each other and, you know, attacking them, you know, secretly and stuff like that. But then uh, he has Marvel say, actually do sort of a 3D puzzle sort of thing. Yes. I should say this issue was written by Stanley, illustrated yes. by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Reinman, gorgeously inked by Paul Reinman. Yes. Uh, as I've said before, Paul Reinman is my favorite pre-Synod Kirby anchor, and um, particularly on these X-Men issues. They're really good. Uh, so he's having um, Marvel Girl go ahead and do this uh, sort of 3D puzzle thing with her telekinetic powers. But then uh, he suddenly is like, wait, silence. I detect the presence of another mutant. And then he tells everybody to clear their thoughts so it's not going to get in his way. And it just, uh, it just occurs to me. It's like if somebody said, clear your thoughts. 
you know, I mentioned I'd immediately be like, you know, don't think of a pink elephant. All I can think of is a pink elephant. So we then have him searching New York City, basically mentally for this new mutant. So then he tells everybody, get in your street clothes. You need to go out and find this guy. So then we get a really kind of a gross sequence where uh, the guy who gets done, who gets ready to go fastest is going to get to a company Marvel girl on their trip. Right. So then they're all just falling all over each other to get there and to um, to try to, you know, grab her, you know, get the right to have her. Essentially, it is kind of gross. Uh, but of course, Scott is just like, eh, Who, by the way, yeah, is no, now called right. Scott. It's I in the first issue, he was called Slim. I think they did not say his first name in the second issue. So I think he's called Scott here for the first time. Scott Summers. Uh, do they ever call him Slim again? I don't think so. <laughs> I just I just lured you into a trap, didn't I? We've always said not to say that sort of thing. Yes, never say it. Never um, say it. So then Scott is thinking to himself, oh, well, nice for them to try to compete for her hand. But, uh, you know, as for me, I'm just my eyes make me too dangerous. I can never, never be happy with something like that. So Gene, meanwhile, is like, oh, no, Scott, don't look so grim. Come on, you and I will search for the mutant together. And then Warren Worthington comes out and literally sweeps her up. After she had said, no, I want to go with Scott, who is the only one who isn't like being a wolfish dick about it. Uh, And then uh, Warren is like, nope, swoop, carry you off literally in his arms and then throw her in his sports car. Um, Granted, she does seem to be really enjoying it as they drive off in his um, in his convertible. So all the other guys are very um, upset. Anyway, so then we get all of them uh, waiting for. Wait. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, did I, did I go by the panel? Did <laughs> you I go by the panel? skipped over okay, the most infamous panel. Invent- I'm sorry. The most infamous panel in X-Men history. So page four, final panel, uh, when, uh, you know, Gene is saying, um, you know, oh, yeah, don't worry about us. You've trained us. And then he, uh, Professor X is lighting his pipe and thinking to himself, don't worry, as though I could help worrying about the one I love. But I can never tell her I have no right, not while I'm the leader of the X-Men and confined to this wheelchair. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> so many things wrong with this. So many things wrong with this. Um, yeah. So yes, uh, he we, is clearly her teacher. Yes. Yes. And fortunately, and also, I mean, her you know, she is a, in his boarding school, she is, he is essentially her in loco parentis, um, you know, and and yet, well, I mean, you know, Hey, let's just honor the fact that he is saying to himself that he can't ever do anything about it. Right. So I guess that's a good thing, but just why, why tell us this? This doesn't, this is not good. Um, this is so terrible. It just ruins. I mean, you know, obviously, Professor Saber already a very problematic character, but and would always yes. remain a problematic character in some ways. And but, would be problematic oh my God. in other ways throughout this issue, too. Yeah, but this just ruins the character totally and, you know, was not mentioned again, or I should say was not mentioned again in the main book. I don't think they've ever brought it up again. However, they then very foolishly, in an attempt to be edgelordy, decided to bring it back up in Ultimate X-Men. And they had... In Ultimate X-Men, they had Professor Xavier there suddenly reveal around issue 80 or so that he was in love with Jean there. And then they killed him off. 
<laughs> later in that same storyline. And but they decided, um, wait, let's ruin the character before we kill him off, just to show that like, hey, Stanley did it, so we can do it too. It was terrible. This is the most infamous panel in X-Men history. She Professor X is a problematic character, but having something for Jean is beyond the pale. And thankfully, never mentioned again in this very issue and never mentioned again in the history of X-Men comics that I'm aware of. This never happened as far as everyone is concerned in X-Men comics <laughs> from this point on. So um, either that or he was like, that was the last time he thought about it. It's like, nope, that's the last time I can think about this because, <laughs> you know, I'm her teacher and I'm too old. So then we'll just put it behind me. Who knows? Um, so anyway, we have uh, scenes of the various X-Men going through New York City, trying to find this mutant, continually thinking, oh, there's someone who seems to be using a superpower. And then there's some explanation for what they're seeing. Scott, however, finally finds the mutant at a traveling carnival. And the mutant is the blob. Let me go ahead and say on page six, we've talked about how just remarkably Kirby inked by Reinman looks like Steve Rude inked by John Nyberg. And this mm-hmm. is never more true than the carnival worker on page six on the fourth panel of page six, <laughs> who could not yeah. look more like Steve Rude inked by John Nyberg. Yeah. Yeah. I could, uh, not necessarily inked by John Nyberg often that, but I mean, also uh, Gary Martin could, uh, could, yes, could have possibly true. done that as well, but yes. Um, uh, <laughs> very good to point that out. Um, so we are introduced to the blob who, uh, essentially is like a carnival sideshow strongman, but instead of a strongman who lifts heavy things, it's just like, oh yeah. So anyone can, anyone who's paid the 25 cents to get in here can come and try to knock him down basically. And so then, you know, he's being crawled over by half a dozen guys, including Scott Summers, trying to knock him down. He just stands there like a statue and just like, nope, no one can knock me down. So uh, apparently this is the mutant. Then we've got a Western sharpshooter type who is also part of the carnival who shoots rifle, uh, shoots a rifle at the blob. And these rifle, these rifle shells, rifle shells, casings, bullets. I don't know. I don't I'm know. a liberal. Uh, I don't know anything about uh, guns. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we were not raised in a uh, in in a gun uh, knowledge family. So um, one way or the other, they lodge into his fatty flesh, and then he's just able to pop them back out. So the bullets are just cushioned into his skin. And this is something that we'll see going forward uh, in the '70s. We'll actually see that Wolverine is unable to slice the blob because. Uh, his skin just sort of oozes in from where the blades are trying to hit him. So Scott Summers tracks the blob down in his sideshow trailer, approaches him and says, hey, you know, um, you're a mutant. And uh, do you want to join the X-Men? And then he's like, not really showing any interest until uh, Warren Worthington shows up with Jean Grey. And he's like, oh, wow, that babes here. Yeah, let me go ahead and uh, come along with you. So and then, um, and then Scott is like, whoa, hitting on Gene. Hey, man, that's one thing the X-Men don't do. All right. We do not <laughs> hit on Gene. It's it's one thing that only the X-Men do. Like <laughs> only we're allowed to hit on her in a gross manner. <laughs> well, they just invited him to join the X-Men. So he's just trying to fit in. He's like, he's uh, like, oh, join the X-Men. huh? I guess that means grossly hitting on gene gray okay let me start and then suddenly scott is like whoa whoa where did that come from (laughs) so uh meanwhile we also get uh an intimation on page nine that the uh blob is actually fireproof as well and i don't think they ever 
bring that up again. I don't remember that being a, a thing that they that they talk about going forward. Anyway, one way or the other, he comes back to the uh, X mansion and uh, is being tested by Professor X to see what kinds of powers and strength that he has. Blob, though, meanwhile, is just like, okay, yeah, that's cool. But uh, no, I am not joining your corny outfit. Uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> At which point they like try to stop him from leaving. And uh, Professor X is like, no, we must erase his memory of what he has seen. We must get him back. Return him to me so I can lobotomize his memories. And really, Professor X is acting quite like a villain in this issue. To some oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's very much. This is very much the sort of thing like. How much better are you than the evil mutants? Like this is you, know, you are behaving kind of evil mutanty here. Um, so then the blob goes back to his circus or his carnival or whatever it is, and essentially says, "Okay, guys, I learned that I'm not even human. I'm better than human, and so now you humans have to follow me. I'm now the run in this outfit, and uh, you're going to follow me. And first thing we're going to do is we're going to conquer the X Men because somehow." I will then get technology that the X-Men have that will allow me to something, something rule the world. I don't know. Um, So uh, that's what they're doing. Uh, As I said earlier, we see more of Hank's uh, new, uh, more precocious dialogue uh, on the top of page 14. Uh, The Beast is saying, Angel, although your colloquialisms are extremely colorful, they are completely unnecessary. I will be fully garbed and at the ready before you shut my door. This is nice to see that development of him into the character that he will be for the next few decades. Or at least yes. next decade. Um, okay, so then, meanwhile, the carnival has just shown up. And this is somewhat <laughs> so- reminiscent of issue, what is it, four or five of the Hulk, where we had the Circus of Crime? Yes. But so it's just delightful on page 14. I mean, I'll just go ahead and jump ahead to say I'm a big fan of this issue. And... You know, so then Warren is going from room to room. We see him stop by Professor X and then stop by the Beast and then stop by Bobby. Bobby is secretly eating an ice cream sundae. Now, I, I, we haven't gotten to the issue yet, I think, where they make it clear that Bobby can create ice cream. <laughs> oh, I thought he was doing that in issue one, wasn't he? Oh, was that issue one where he was he turned pie into a la mode? Oh, maybe not. That might be a later one. Okay, I yeah, think maybe that so. might still I'm be sure. coming up. So it's unclear if he has created this ice cream himself, but he is eating ice cream. And then suddenly... A giraffe head sticks in his window (laughs) and eats the ice cream. And they're like, what's going on? And this is how they find out that a circus is attacking them, which is just delightful. And so meanwhile, in the next panel where Bobby is pushing the giraffe back out with a mop, we actually see the tightrope walkers setting up their little tower that will be the anchor point for the tightrope that they're going to do and various other stuff being set up. Then, you know, in the next panel, we see the strong, this sort of stereotypical strongman. We've got what looks like a Maharaja type dude on an elephant. We've got, uh, you know, a sharpshooter. We've got all sorts of stuff going on. So we're going to have tons of zany Kirby fun going forward here. Uh, The beast fighting a gorilla at one point, the cowboy guy trying to lasso the angel. We've got some uh, guys being fired out of cannons in order to take the angel out of the sky. We've got, we've got Scott shooting an elephant with his power blast, (laughs) all sorts of fun stuff. So meanwhile, what the X-Men are trying to do is stall these guys until Professor X can build himself this machine, which seems like maybe a proto-cerebro of some sort, 
uh, which will allow him to amplify his powers to be able to mass erase the memories of all of these people that are here of that this is where the X-Men are. Scott figures out that uh, even though he can't knock over the blob himself, he can go ahead and uh, undermine the earth underneath the blob, which makes him fall down. <laughs> We've got a truly bizarre situation on page 20 where the beast is moving forward in a particular direction. And he, you, we've just seen how agile he is. and how he's just jumping in all sorts of directions. But then we have a human pyramid set up where they say, here he comes, brace yourselves. He can't stop now. He's moving too fast. Well, literally in the previous panel, we'd seen him moving around very agilely. <laughs> and now it's like, yes. oh no, he's 20 feet away from us. He's moving too fast and he can't stop. And then somehow this human pyramid which should be a very unstable thing, is able to catch and stop the beast as he tries to jump through their legs. Uh, so yes. one way or the other, it looks like the X-Men have all been captured. Professor X then tells Marvel Girl, hey, use your telekinesis to take off your blindfold. And then in one of those carnival trailers, you will find the knife throwers stuff. So you can go ahead and grab one of those knives telekinetically and free yourself. So she does that. And then she goes and is able to free the rest of the X-Men. And they're able to go and stop the Blob and his gang before they're able to beat up uh, Professor X. And this allows Professor X enough time to finish his invention. And then he goes and he says, this is the moment when the resistance is at its lowest ebb. My thoughts are your thoughts, Blob. My will is your will. And your men have never heard of the X-Men. You have never seen our headquarters. You are all as you were before we found you. My will is yours. My will is yours. And then a moment of seconds later, uh, what's going on? What are we doing here? I don't know. We better get back to the carnival before we get sacked. And then they head on back and the blob is just back to doing his carnival act and does not even remember at this point that he at one point thought that he was better than everybody else. Um, and yeah, there we go. So, uh, a book with some highs and lows, let's just say, yes, um, indeed. Uh, some, fan some fantastic Kirby Reinman art, some fantastic circus fight scenes, but at the same time, everyone is once again, just, uh, sexually harassing Gene all over the place, <laughs> including at least in his brain, Professor X, which is gross. So, yes. So gross. Yeah. But this is, other than that, a great issue. So the Bob would turn out to be a great long term, but never as the solo villain again. He would, you know, they quickly, they realized by the time he comes back next issue, he works better in groups, as always a member in various configurations of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which then eventually gets rebranded as Freedom Force when they go to work for the government. They realize that, you know, the Bob is a great person to be fighting the x-men as part of a group but um it is an interesting sort of what could have been where we see him as more of an intimidating force who can actually lead an army of his own in this issue and it's a little bit uh similar to the circus of crime back in hulk but it is wonderful it is i think kirby loves circuses and i think kirby yeah. just has a heck of a fun time drawing the circus attacking the x-men and he loves having uh, unfortunate things happen to elephants. Yes. <laughs> he does. Poor <laughs> elephants. They, they are treated very well by Kirby. <laughs> being juggled, being shot by <laughs> eye beams. You know. 
horror elements. Okay, so um, yes, I, I think I think we've said what we need to say about that. So I think we're down to the last issue of this month, which would be the Avengers, and I believe this is your turn. All right. So we have an embarrassment of riches this month. We had Ryan Men and King Kirby and Tales of Asgard. We had Ryan Men and King Kirby in X-Men, and we have Ryan Men and King Kirby in Avengers. And all three inking jobs are just fantastic. Reinman gets better and better. When we first met him a couple of months ago, he was just okay. And now he is doing absolutely gorgeous work. And tragically, this is his last issue of Avengers because next issue is will be one of the most monumentous issues of the Avengers ever in which Captain America is reintroduced. And tragically, it will be inked by George Bell. It is especially a shame because this issue shows uncredited. what could have been. Yes, uncredited George Bell but clearly George Bell in, uh, in the next issue. But this issue, inked by Reinman, so much better. Oh, um, and let, let, let me just say, what we were talking about with, um, with Iron Man's new mask that we were talking about earlier, it's weird. At the beginning of this issue, it seems that they've got it right. It seems like they figured out how that mask is actually supposed to work. But as the issue goes on, those points start getting pointier. <laughs> yes, a little bit weird. And then next issue, they'll be very pointy. But um, yeah, it just sort of seems to gradually happen. Just yes. But uh, so it's an odd issue, and they talk about how it's odd on the first page. The issue is called "The Avengers Meet the Submariner," and then they explain he doesn't come in till page fifteen. But when he does, wow! So. <laughs> In matter of fact, they spent most of this issue fighting the Hulk, who, when last we saw, was an actual member of the Avengers. But he left the Avengers at the end of last issue, and now he has become their number one nemesis. So it was weird. They sort of fought him in the first issue and then ended up having him join at the end of that issue. And then they ended up finding him again in the second issue because there was uh, some confusion with the space phantom. And then he left at the end of that issue. And now they're finding him again in the third issue now as officially their nemesis, not as a member of the team in any way, shape or form. But and then it also becomes a Submariner issue. But as they point out on the splash page, Submariner doesn't show up until page 15. However, this turns out to be an extremely long issue. This is a 25-page issue, which I think is the longest non-annual Marvel comic we've had so far. And it is epic. This is the most epic a Marvel comic can get that is not an annual. So then we begin the story. Yeah. The ex the Avengers are all sitting around going like, who are we going to fight now, the guys? They're like, let's fight our former member of the Hulk. So then Iron Man <laughs> projects his projects his image around to talk to various other Marvel heroes. First talks to Ben Grimm, then talks to Reed and Johnny and Sue, then finds Spider-Man, talks to him, then goes to the X-Men, who, of course, he met earlier this very month. And they actually have a little, you know, footnote saying that he met them in Tales of Suspense 49, Iron Man and the Angel. It says, I took the liberty of barging in because the Angel had told me to contact you if I ever needed a favor. It says, we shall notify you as you request if we hear anything about the Hulk. So then... They say, hey, I know. Here's a better person to call. Why don't we call Rick Jones? He's someone who actually knows where the Hulk is all the time. So then they call Rick Jones, and Rick Jones is like, yeah, I'll go try to find the Hulk. But then Rick's like, <laughs> nah, I'm not. I'm, I am going to go try to find the Hulk and then not tell the Avengers, which he does. And he is out there with the Hulk, convinces the Hulk to turn back into Bruce Banner. But then Bruce Banner turns back into the Hulk in the middle of the night, wakes up, tears off into the night. And Rick Jones is like, yeah, I guess, okay, I got to go ahead and tell the Avengers. So he goes ahead and tells the Avengers. He says, he's in New Mexico, Sector B. And they mention that a couple of times. Like, that's where he is. He's in New Mexico, but Sector B in New Mexico. 
So just yes. we're clear, you can look that up on a map, so, Sector B. So then we have all of the Avengers who are presumably all in the New York area hauling ass out to New Mexico again. And they get into a massive fight. And basically from this point on, this issue is all action. And it is fantastic. Kirby is having a ball in this issue, Kirby and Reinman. And so then we have Hulk and Iron Man fighting out in the desert. The Hulk springs all of the spines off of a cactus and shoots them at Iron Man. Then it eventually ends up on a train. I always love train fights. They are banging the hell out of each other on this train. And then... The Hulk finds out that there's a secret weapon hidden inside one of these train cars, the ultimate weakness of the Avengers, flower. And he then uses, he grabs bags of flour and uses yeah. them to totally defeat the Avengers. There's a great panel. Uh, he uses the flower to blind Giant Man, and then the train goes into a tunnel, and Giant Man goes, whoop, and gets knocked off the train when the train goes into a tunnel. <laughs> And oh yeah, no that that looks brutal. <laughs> it just does. looks like oh no, that's how that's how Giant Man died. Right there, yeah. he got it's a Jane Mansfield moment. It's just like yikes, killed by flower. So then the Hulk gets away. The Hulk makes it out to sea, but then we finally, as promised, run into the name of the Submariner on page fifteen. Little does the Hulk realize that his every movement is being followed by the Monarch of the Sea, Prince Namor, the Submariner, and so then. Namor has seen the Hulk is there on a ship, decides to contact him, says, hey, you and I should fight the Avengers, even though neither of us are really that bad of a guys. And so then they go, yes, let's do it. Let's fight the Avengers. They invite the Avengers to come fight them on an island. One thing that happens here that is reminiscent of uh, of the Crimson Dynamo and Khrushchev is uh, on the top of page 18, where uh, they're both the Hulk is thinking. I'll string along for a while, then smash him when he's off guard. And simultaneously, Namor is thinking he is too strong, too undependable. When he served his purpose, I'll destroy him. <laughs> so yes. this is one of those things about all no honor among thieves kind of uh, kind of situations. Which really doesn't make sense because the summer has always been per- portrayed as pretty honorable. But yes. so then. So then we have the Avengers are getting ready to go. But first, Wasp has to tell Thor how much she wants to bone him because that is part of her character. So she (laughs) says, I hope it won't be your finish, handsome, because I'm still waiting to see what you would look like in an Ivy League suit and a crew cut with those shoulders, those eyes. Mm." And then Giant Man picks Wasp up by her butt and says... Aren't you ever going to grow up, Wasp? Haven't you anything else on your mind? And she says, well, happy day. Do I finally see a glint of green in those big blue eyes of yours? Now put me down, you big show off. So this is always a big question is, is the Wasp really attracted to all of these people? Or is she just trying to get Hank Pym jealous? And sometimes we see into her thoughts, implying that she really is genuinely attracted to all these people. But other times, they made it pretty clear in Avengers vs. Mightiest Heroes that she was just trying to make Hank jealous all the time. Um, and she was just, you know, this was all just an attempt to get Hank by pretending to be boy crazy, but not so clear in these comics. Anyway, so then they go ahead and they go to the trap that's been laid for them by Submariner and Hulk, and they get in an epic fight. They are just pounding on each other for about 10 pages here. This is a long comic. It goes to page 25. Eventually, we have the first scene where someone else tries to pick up Thor's hammer, and it's unclear. There's recently been a series of posts by Brian Carnan on the comic Should Be Good about what is the deal with who else can pick up Thor's hammer. 
And it was unclear in these early issues if you actually had to be worthy to lift the hammer or if it was just that only Thor could lift it because it was so heavy. And that seems to be, you know, it's generally shown that the Hulk is stronger than Thor um, and the Hulk can't lift it. He can't budge it. And he says, but I got to keep trying. I'm twice his size. I'm the Hulk, the Hulk. But um, but it's so unclear why exactly other people can't lift the hammer. Um, so yes. then the Hulk turns back to Bruce Banner. He realizes he'd better get out of there. He runs away. Namor can't understand why he's been ditched by him. Namor finally uh, looks like he's going to be defeated, but then he manages to break through a wall into some water. He's got some water. He's got his strength back, but he decides to take off. And Wasp says, Thor, he's escaping. Only your hammer can stop him. Hurl it. But Thor says, no, I have too much respect for his valor. Namor has earned his escape. And then Giant Man says, Thor's right. It's a pity the Submariner isn't on our side. But then Iron Man says, we've made a bad mistake. He doesn't fight by our rules. We may live to regret this. So it's they always do a good job in these <laughs> comics of really having genuine disagreement. That's one thing Stanley really liked was showing genuine disagreement among his heroes as to what the right thing to do was that w- was left unresolved. And so that is the end of the issue. And then we are set up for the massively important issue that will happen next. But so this is an epic story. This is a huge 25-page epic blowout battle between the Avengers, the Hulk, and Namor. It is tremendously fun to read. Kirby is just having the time of his life. He is being ably assisted by Paul Reinman, and Lee is having fun as well. I am a fan of this issue. Yeah, yeah, this is an excellent one. It's nice to see both Hulk and Submariner are two characters who are always a little ambiguous. They can be villains, they can be heroes, and they will be both from various points in time going forward. And so it's really interesting to pair the two of them up and see where they would go with that. It's also just highlighting the fact that Marvel has more of this moral ambiguity for things. You know, is this a bad guy or not? Is it maybe a bad guy in one issue and a good guy in the next issue? Right. Which, you know, honestly was something that they could have been shut down on by the Comic Code Authority really at any time. But they somehow let it slip under the radar because, you know, you weren't supposed to have characters who were ambiguously possibly good or evil. Like that's that's just not supposed to be something you were going to do under the Comics Code Authority. Uh, But they somehow got away with it here and they got away with, you know, the Hulk fighting the army all the time and yet still him being the protagonist of his book. All sorts of interesting stuff. But, yeah, this is uh, them sort of delving a little deeper into those waters. Yep. And it's a great issue. Mm hmm. Okay, so this has once again been a long evening of recording. (laughs) Yes. 1242 in Greensboro. Yes, indeed. And I I, uh, I have edited the last three episodes because Matt's been busy with his uh, other stuff. So uh, Matt's going to be doing this recording session into two separate episodes and good luck to you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. I will. Uh, I will try to tackle this tomorrow. I'm on a brief hiatus from work because they gave us a couple of days off because we had this epic work trip. So I will try to get this done. Although it really doesn't make any sense for me to be doing this either because I had thought about trying to edit book videos this week too uh, for my book comes out next month. My book comes out next week. So everybody, next week, you can Ah. all go out and buy my book, The Secrets of Character, Writing Heroes Anyone Will Love, uh, coming out from Penguin Random House, which is published next week. And so I really, instead of editing this episode, should be cutting some book videos. But there wasn't time. I had pretty much given up on any (laughs) hope of getting a book video edited. 
before my book comes out, but um, I will edit this instead. So, okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, so, every, will... so everybody, so every, so everybody pre, pre-order Matt's book from your local independent bookstore. I think by the time you hear this episode, you don't have to pre-order it anymore. You can just order it. <laughs> order a copy from your local independent bookstore, The Secrets of Character, Writing Heroes Anyone Will Love. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. All right, take care. Stay safe out there, everybody. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.